The scripture reading is taken from John chapter 14, verses 1 through 7. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Kimberly. Since Christmas, we've been in a, a series, a sermon series looking at the question, who is Jesus? Who do we believe him to be? It's a question that everyone has an opinion about. Everyone in this room, everyone in Hoboken, everyone in America, in fact, beyond America. Throughout history, some people have loved Jesus and his name, and some people have hated him. Some would call him a great teacher, others a great divider. Some would see him as a source of hope, others would see him as a source of superstition and ignorance. He's the answer to the world's problems. He is the problem. Everyone has an opinion. What should we think about him? Well, one of the goals of this series is to answer that question by looking at what Jesus said about himself. We're not looking at books. We're not looking at movies. We're not looking at the opinions and answers of other people. But what did Jesus himself say about himself? How did he understand himself? Now, Jesus said many things, but talking about himself, he used a series of illustrations or metaphors to unpack the depths of who he is and why he came. He called himself the bread of life, the light of the world, the gate, the door that we must pass through. Last week, we looked at his claim to be the great shepherd. This morning, the way, the truth, and the light. And to look at what that means to unpack the content, what Jesus was saying to us about himself. So let's look at this. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Now this passage comes as Jesus has turned from his ministry in Israel and is now headed towards the cross. The the disciples know something is up. He's been talking about what's going to happen. He's washed their feet. He has predicted that one of the disciples is going to betray him. He's told Peter that he's going to deny him. The disciples are agitated. They know they're coming to a great climax. They know something terrible is about to happen, and they're freaking out. They're agitated. They're disturbed. They know that they are part of something that is about to get strange, dangerous, frightening. And so Jesus is calming them here. He is 
telling them this parable, this giving them this metaphor about himself as a way of reassuring them, as a way of helping them process what is about to happen. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. All, pu- all human beings have the same unavoidable problem. Death. A huge, vast problem over which we have no control. No say. There's no argument. It's something that looms in every life, and it's terrifying. What is so terrifying about death? Why is it that it has such a hold of ours? You know, there's a a part in one of Shakespeare's plays, Hamlet, famous soliloquy by Hamlet, where he ponders this question, and you get a sense of the real terror. Hamlet is not a happy camper. The slings and arrows of outrageous fortune are overwhelming him, and he is considering killing himself. And so he's pondering to be or not to be. Should he die, solve all his problems with death, or should he fight? To die might be just to sleep, and it would solve all his problems. But there's a problem. There's a rub. And he says this. To sleep, a chance to dream. Aye, there's the rub. For in that sleep of death, what dreams may come when we have shuffled off this mortal coil? Maybe he's thinking, there is more to death than just switching off, switching off our lives and our minds. Hamlet again. The dread of something after death. The undiscovered country from whose born no traveler returns puzzles the will and makes us rather bear those ills we have than fly to others that we know not of. It's an amazing image. Death as the undiscovered country from whom and from where no travelers return to tell us what it is like. And so our minds spin imagined terrors and horrors. What might there be there? Maybe there's more than just switching off like sleep. Maybe there are dreams. Maybe there's a whole different level of existence. Maybe maybe there are unimaginable things that might devour us so that it is better to live in this life than face death. And it's to that fear that Jesus is speaking here. The fear of his disciples of death, the fear of everyone of death, the fear of the undiscovered country where who knows what might happen. And so what does Jesus say? My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you may also be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. This passage, by the way, is often requested in my experience by people who are facing sickness or the illness of the beloved members of their family or who are themselves failing, facing death. 
It's often a passage that is read at memorials or funerals because it contains some amazing promises, some amazing truths that Jesus claims. What does he say first? That there is something beyond death, but not some unimaginable place of terror. A father with a house, a loving father who cares for us, who knows us. A home with many rooms where each of us has a place prepared individually where we're safe, where we're taken care of, where we have nothing to fear. And there is a way from here to there. That's who Jesus is. The way, the truth, and the life. And unlike Hamlet, who speaks of an undiscovered land where a traveler has never come back to report, Jesus promises, I will come back. I will come back and show you the way. I'm going to open up a way by going first, and then I'm going to come back, and I'm going to bring you with me. I will be your guide. I will be your shepherd. I will be the one to face the darkness and the fears first, and to defeat them for you. And this is the core of Christian belief, its claim of truth, its promise, and its hope. Jesus says it here. I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Peter says it when he speaks before the leaders of Israel, when they challenge him, when the persecution of the Christian church begins. Peter says, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. And Paul says it when he is teaching Timothy how to be a leader in the church. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man, Christ Jesus. It is the essence of Christianity that Jesus alone is the way, is the truth, is the life. But of course, there's a problem with that nowadays. Absolute claims of truth are not welcome in our world. Somebody might say they accept the idea that Jesus is the way for Christians, for you, for me. But how can you say that for other people? Someone might allow the idea of Christianity and faith and the claims of Christianity, but not allow that it has any claim on them or anybody else. You can't go around saying that Jesus is truth, capital T. That you have the truth and nobody else does. That you're right and everybody else is wrong. It is considered arrogant. It is considered offensive by many. It's considered an act of hatred. Uh, right now, France is in the process of banning Christian conversions or, or proselytizing, attempts to convert people. When I was in India, it was illegal there to do to speak about Jesus. I had to claim that I was just going as a tourist. It is illegal 
the Christian tourist to speak about Jesus. Absolute truth claims are problematic in the world. And even in America now, you'll hear people saying that claims about Christian Christianity, truth claims, are an act of hatred and intolerance and ignorance. It's everywhere. And I felt it. Uh, you know, many of you know, I, I just came back from India. And there was a, a place there in the River Ganges where millions and millions, literally millions, of Hindus go for festivals to bathe and wash in the River Ganges, which is considered the holiest river. So pure, it cannot be defiled. And so you go to wash in it and drink in it, despite the fact that there are cattle in it and people washing their clothes in it and God knows. Actually, people are cremated and their remains are dropped into the river. And you, millions of people are doing this, and they have transformed the landscape. They've, they create canals so that millions can get down into the water, down the steps. The, the, the landscape around is flattened so that millions of pilgrims can come and approach the river. Huge idols towering hundreds of feet in the air. Millions of people and a whole transformed landscape. And there's a moment when I was standing there, I was on a bridge over the Ganges looking at all this. You can see the video, by the way, of this on our Facebook page. Uh, and I thought, am I arrogant to think that all these millions of people could be wrong? That they're in bondage? That they're lost souls, sheep without a shepherd? Is it really arrogant of me to stand in the middle of this extraordinary event and think and believe that? The response of some Christians, has been to try to downplay the truth claims of Christianity. Turn Jesus into a mere teacher amongst other teachers, a moral way amongst other ways. You've probably heard of the illustrations of the religions of the world compared to an elephant, where one pilgrim grabs the leg of the elephant and thinks that the elephant is really a tree, and another grasps the tail and thinks that, that the elephant is like a snake, and another grasps the trunk or the tusk. Each person grabbing a small part and thinking that they have the whole, whereas, of course, the elephant is none of those things. The elephant is much bigger. Or the idea that all religions are merely paths, ways, but up the same mountain so that they arrive at the same truth. And some Christians think this way, and, and so a lot of non-Christians, secular people think this way. The trouble with looking at truth claims like this is that the person who makes such a claim isn't one of the pilgrims, isn't one of the ones grabbing hold of a part of the element, or one of the ones trying to make their way up that mountain. What are they doing? They're claiming that they alone can see the whole elephant. And all these poor religious people can only see a fraction. They alone can see the whole mountain. While the poor pilgrims of different religions struggle their lonely way up the path. It's actually a very arrogant claim. It's a truth claim. I can see the truth because I've got the big picture. And you poor, ignorant, superstitious religious people only have a glimpse of the truth. You know, when I became a Christian, 
I, I went back to England and I spent my last year, my final year of college, uh, in England in Sussex, Sussex University. And I joined, um, a religious group. It was a group on campus and the idea was to explore all religious truth claims and religions and, uh, moral teachings and it was considered very enlightened to be part of this group. So I joined it. And it was very disappointing. They loved, there were about 12 people in the group. They were very smart, mostly embarrassed ex-Christians, mostly trying to deal with truth claims. And they had read everything. They had read the Quran. They had read the Bhagavad Gita. They had read um, the Bible. They'd read everything they could lay their hands on. They'd studied different languages. They were very smart. And they loved to talk about spirituality and the religious experience. But I noticed, although they were passionate about all these different ideas, they actually were not transformed by any of them. They believed it was smart to treat religious ideas as mere ideas to be played with and thought about. But there was nothing of the heart in them. And the truth, the realization came to me when at the end of every meeting, and I, I went there for a whole semester, they've been talking about religion, religious practice, religious rituals, religious beliefs. And they knew deep down that they needed to end the meeting with something. But of course they didn't believe in anything. Now I'd just become a Christian. I was eager to pray. And so I would always say, well, why don't we just end with a prayer? And they loved that idea. And I was used to praying with Christians, so I would pray, and then I would wait for other people to pray, and of course they couldn't. And it made me realize, for them, it was just ideas bouncing around in their heads. It had no content, no emotional content, no relationship. They couldn't actually pray. They couldn't actually worship. They were, when push comes to shove, absolutely alone. In love with their own ideas, bewitched by the idea of religion, by the idea of Jesus, but without any content, without any relationship, without any power in their lives. You know, at the time I was reading a lot of C.S. Lewis, and there's one thing he says that I think is so true. This is in mere Christianity. He's talking about Jesus. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. That I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. This, Lewis is saying, is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, 
You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. That's exactly right. Jesus did not come as a teacher, although he taught a lot of things. He primarily came as a savior to open up the way to God. Christians, before they were called Christians, were called the people of the way, people who followed Jesus. Because they believed what he said when he said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And if you ignore that claim, if you try to reduce Christianity to mere teaching, to an idea, to a philosophy, then there is no power because there's no relationship with this singular person, Jesus. And so you end up with people like I met, people who just play with ideas, who don't recognize that the different ideas about God are fundamentally in conflict. You can't have many paths up the same mountain if they fundamentally disagree about reality. And they're condescending because it's intellectually lazy to believe that you've got a picture of the whole and all these millions and billions of other people don't. But the biggest problem is that it leaves you alone. The undiscovered country, death, awaits us all. And if you don't have a way, if you don't know someone who's going to show you the way, then you're lost and alone in the terror and the imagining. There's no salvation. There's no promise. There is nothing that you can grasp hold of. And what of me, a Christian pastor, standing on that bridge looking at these millions of people going to the Ganges? Well, I was reminded of the Greek myth of Syphysis, who was condemned for all eternity to keep trying to push a boulder up to the top of the mountain, but it keeps falling back down. Because that is Hinduism. An endless cycle of karma, where through duty, through ritual, through penance, you try to increase your level of karma so that in your next cycle of incarnation you go a little bit higher up the ladder. But if you get it wrong, you can slip all the way down into being an animal. Endless cycles. A horror, really, where you can never get off. An endless cycle of duty, of work, of ritual. No freedom, no home, no one to receive you and give you rest. Jesus is the way. He shows us how to get from here through death to a safe home. And he's the truth. He makes absolute truth claims. Now, you can reject them, but you can't explain them away as alternative truths. But he's also the life. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know me and have seen him. Notice what he's saying. 
Christianity is not knowing about Jesus. It is knowing the person Jesus. It is the relationship with him. Imagine you're in the middle of the storm. And you're at sea and you're all alone and your ship is sinking. And the cold water is up to your knees and you're desperate and you're terrified. And then out of the darkness comes a light. A miracle. And you hear the sound of a helicopter. And this human figure descends out of the darkness, plunging into the sea with you. And he swims over to you. And he says, I'm a Coast Guard rescue diver. I've come to save you. Grab hold of me. I'll take you back to the winch basket. That is not an idea. In that moment, it is not a discussion about what you believe. That is an event. That is a drama. That is a cataclysm. And in the middle of it, a Savior comes. And all you have to believe is that He can save you. And all the faith you need is just enough to reach out and take His hand. And He does the rest. Belief enough to turn to Him. Faith enough to reach out. That's Christianity. The encounter with the personal Christ. Christians are saved not because we're good people, but because we've met Jesus as our Savior. Think about the source of all the hatred and intolerance in the world between religious people is all about. It's very easy. Three steps. Step one. One group of people decide that they're the good guys. Step two. The good guys identify the bad guys. The bad guys are people who believe something different. Step three. We're the solution. They are the problem to be solved. Let's get rid of them. It's how it works throughout history. We're the good guys. We've got the answer. Follow us, do what we say, whatever it is, and everything is going to be great. Who are the bad guys? The ones that disagree with us, the ones who oppose us, the ones who have a different idea. What's the solution? Get rid of them, because they're the problem. And all the pogroms, and all the genocides, and all the wars, and all the battles of ideology, that's how it works. The good guys believing that their goodness justifies whatever they do next to the bad guys, who are bad after all, and therefore you can do anything you want to them. What's the Christian solution to that? Christianity says there are no good guys and bad guys. There are only people who are lost. We're all bad. None of us deserve anything. Jesus came to save us because we cannot save ourselves. In England, after the Second World War, there was a, a competition run by a newspaper. And, uh, you know, there was a lot of debate back in the early 50s about what to make of what had just happened, the genocide and the horrors of war. And so this paper asked the question, what is the problem with the world? 
And thousands and thousands of people responded. But there was one answer that won famously. It was G.K. Chesterton, a Catholic writer. And he wrote back with a postcard, and it had one sentence on it, and it said, I am the problem. The problem with the world is me, not those other people, not something outside myself, not another group, not another idea. I'm the problem, and I need to be saved. Saved from myself as much as anything else. Can there be any arrogance in such an answer? If you truly believe that you're the problem. Where's the arrogance in that? There's none. There's only humility, because it's the gospel. Where's the self-righteousness? Where's the pride? Where's the hatred for other people? There is none. Because the Christian gospel has two amazing parts. We are the problem. We need to be saved. The sin and brokenness of the world runs down, right down through the center of our hearts. But there is one who loves us anyway, Jesus Christ, who has come into the world to show us the way home, to save us, who loves us despite ourselves. And when you have those two parts of the gospel, there is no arrogance. Because what could we be arrogant about? But also, there can be no humiliation. Because if we are loved by God, then who should we fear in this world? If the Christian gospel is at the center of who you are, there is no arrogance, but there is also great confidence. There is no hatred, but there is also an abundance of love. The Christian gospel isn't about ignorance. It isn't about hatred or intolerance. It's about a generosity of a person who's been saved, who is always thankful, and who witnesses not an ideology, but a person, Jesus Christ, who we can be thankful about. Let me end with this. Um, Thomas Akempis was a, a German monk and he wrote a book uh, on the imitation of Christ, about how to grow as a Christian disciple. And it was a series of meditations on different passages in the Bible where Jesus talked about himself. And he, he wrote about this passage, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And he said this, Follow thou me. I am the way, and the truth, and the life. Without the way, there is no going. Without the truth, there is no knowing. Without the life, there is no living. I am the way which thou must follow, the truth which thou must believe, the life for which thou must hope. I am the inviolable way, the infallible truth, the never-ending tr life. I am the straightest way, the sovereign truth, true life, life blessed, life uncreated. That's the promise of these verses. Who is Jesus? Each of us has to make a decision ourselves. 
Thomas Akempis made his decision. What is your decision about him? Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that through Christ you show us the way, the way back to you. You show us the truth that though we are lost, we are loved. We are your beloved. And though we, fa- we face life, life's end, though we face the terrors of death, in you there is eternal life. Life uncreated. Life unstained. Lord, show us how to believe. Show us how to live in your truth. Show us, Lord, how to follow. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.